She had pulled out bound collections of old movie magazines, the same ones she and my mom used to look through when they were convalescing as teenagers. We flipped through the pages, admiring the actors, Grace Kelly, Rita Hayworth, Jane Wyman, and Ingrid Bergman. And finally, I mustered up the courage to ask her about Brestovats. Her blue eyes became grave. Her son translated as she said, That time was a disaster for so many of us. Every week, two or three beds would open. She sighed, smoothing the white tablecloth with the palm of her hand. My mom had never talked about the dying. Ruzitsa continued, Your baka, your mom's grandmother, only wanted Mariana to get better despite herself. Despite herself, echoed in my mind. I nodded and felt a slight ache behind my heart. My mom wanted to live, even if it made her die. Rujitsa shook her head and said, Katarin, we tried so hard to forget. We spent our whole lives trying to forget that time. Catherine Caphan's mother, Mariana, died of ovarian cancer when Catherine was only 22. She found herself cut off from the past she never really knew. Born and raised in America, Catherine realized that she knew very little of her Croatian mother's early life. As Catherine searches for clues to her mother's elusive history, she discovers that Mariana was orphaned during World War II nearly died as a teenager and escaped from former Yugoslavia to Rome and then South America. Through travel and memory, history and imagination, Catherine resurrects the relatives she's never known. But how does collective memory exist between mothers and daughters? And what does it mean to find wholeness? These are the questions that Catherine explores in her book, Immigrant Daughter, Stories You Never Told Me. All my life, I had felt different and kind of fought for this immigrant, daughter of immigrants identity, you know, and I was so happy. I just felt like, yeah, I really am. Like, I have that immigrant identity of my mom's, you know, and um, and then I got home and my husband told me that I wouldn't, you know, be able to really apply, like they wouldn't consider my book because you had to have two parents that were immigrants, not just one. <laughs> and he could, because he had two parents. And so I think I got really mad. For me, it's it was hard to be able to claim a child of immigrant identity when I was growing up and where I was, and my family was very different than the families around us. And so I said, you know what? I'm changing my title. <laughs> I'm gonna call my book Immigrant Daughter Stories You Never Told Me. It's kind of for both of us. It's for me and it's for my mom. And I am so excited to interview Catherine today because I have two daughters and I want to know how as mothers we pass on our memories, our fears, our aspirations to our daughters. Here to talk about all of this is Catherine and you will be surprised that during this interview we focused mostly on Catherine's mom and her book. We never got a chance to talk about Catherine in detail. Well, maybe another episode. I'm your host Sadia Khan and you are listening to Immigrantly. 
Catherine, thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. I have so many questions for you. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with COVID-19. We are in the midst of a pandemic and we are all witnessing how infectious diseases can impact our lives. And I believe your mom experienced this a long time ago. And I want you to start with talking about how TB impacted her life and shaped her journey. I've been thinking about her a lot <laughs> lately here in Queens, New York. During World War II, she was a little girl and both her mom and dad died of tuberculosis. And then afterward, during Tito's communist Yugoslavia, she also was struck by the disease. She spent some time in a hospital, I think, you know, maybe up to a year. And then when she was a teenager, she had reoccurrence and then was in a TB sanatorium called Brestovats on the mountainside above Zagreb. And she really left the country because she wasn't able to get adequate medical care and enough, I think, streptomycin to recover. And she continued to fight TB into her early 20s, even after she was married. So yeah, it is a disease that haunted her and makes me think a lot about now when you go outside to do anything to grocery mm -hmm. shop or that this coronavirus is spread through air droplets and how you just don't know if it's going to hit you or not. And TB was kind of the opposite of coronavirus and it could be very slow and stay with somebody for a really long time. And mm -hmm coronavirus seems like a fast-moving <laughs> infectious disease, but the fear of getting it or the fear of not knowing how your body will handle it, because it seems like when I read about different patients and different people that get it and do really badly or people that get it and do well or my friends that have gotten it or my students, a student wrote to me this morning that his uncle just died a couple of days ago. Um, it's that you don't know, you know, will you be sent home or will the ambulance not take you to the hospital? <laughs> and then a couple of days later, you could die, you know, and I think it's the randomness and cruelty of infectious diseases on people, especially people that people of color, people that are struggling economically. I'm really thinking a lot about that now. Did your mom ever talk to you about her fears of TB and how she survived it? Like, did you guys ever have an in-depth conversation around this issue? No. The only thing that she told me about her TB was that when she was a teenager and they stayed in the TB sanatorium, that she and the others would sneak out at night and have picnics on the mountainside and they couldn't get their hands on alcohol. So they would like make alcohol to drink. And so that was the only story she gave to me. When she changed her clothes, I would see there was a scar. Eventually she had surgery and it was a surgery developed for coal miners and she had it in Spain she was staying with her aunt and uncle and she had to be immobile for three months, like almost in a cast. And I guess pleura would develop 
around the cavity or the part of that of the tuberculosis and then they would do surgery and take it out and after that she was okay but literally Mm -hmm. she kind of had spent all her childhood and young adulthood fighting tb my uncle much older than my father died of tb as well I'm assuming even at my parents' time, vaccine was created. And then obviously, when we were born, we we were vaccinated. But as you talk about it, it just, you know, takes me back. And when we were growing up, we used to hear these stories about how people in our family had TB and how they died because of that. And it was such a horrific disease at that time. And in the U.S., I think many people don't know about it as much or they don't talk about it. But in developing countries and in other places, it it still haunts people to this day. Yes, I think it's so interesting. My friend, another wonderful, she's a wonderful Croatian-American writer, Courtney Berkic, When I was doing my research, she told me, oh, yes, you know, when she had been going through her village records for the cause of death, it would be like TB, 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 farming accident, TB, 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 you know, to show me like how common it was, how many people died of TB. And and for me, it's even more significant because my dad got polio. You know, I had direct (laughs) connection, you know, with polio and tuberculosis. And my dad had a limp, so it could have been much worse for him too. So yeah, so I, I think about it a lot now. And just going out with, when I take my sons for a walk, how, you know, you don't want to be too close to anybody, you don't want to walk very close to somebody. And I think of the stories I talk to um, Croatians about their beliefs and myths and ideas around TB in the 50s and the 40s. And, you know, like sunlight would kill the bacteria, like put the sheets out in the sunlight. And, and now I'm reading articles about the coronavirus, like, you know, to put things out in the sunlight. (laughs) And so I feel these echoes of history happening right now. And I grew up with these like, stories and these snippets of, you know, uh, what could help and what cured. Although, as I said, when I was born, obviously, there was a vaccine and things were very different. Just hearing those stories is is bringing back so many memories. Let's talk about your mom. You said that she fled former Yugoslavia. Did she leave alone? Was she accompanied by someone? What was that journey like? Her health was taking a turn for the worse. And she had been sent home from the TV sanatorium. Maybe they needed the bed. Maybe you could only stay for so long. And her grandmother, who was raising her, who had a third grade education, and they were just barely surviving, and they were often hungry. Her grandmother really, really wanted to get her out of the country. And my mom had an aunt and uncle that were living in Argentina that had escaped during World War II. They wanted to help her. And so her grandmother... It was during early Tito times, so a lot stricter (laughs) in the early 50s there. And I think the person on her street that reported everything to the communist went away for a short time. And so my, my mom's grandmother got my mom on a train to Rome. And so she went all by herself, not knowing would she ever see her beloved grandmother who had raised her again. 
And in Rome, she stayed in like a refugee center. And Mm. the problem was, is that she didn't have healthy lungs and you needed like a clean x-ray to get entry into Argentina. And also she had, there were some relatives in the States, in New York, but they wouldn't take her. (laughs) Croatian Monsignor from the Vatican arranged for her to see a doctor and this doctor gave her a forged x-ray, an x-ray that looked healthy. She was able to get on a ship in Genoa after six months and take a ship across the Atlantic to Buenos Aires. And how much time did she spend there then? She was in Buenos Aires about six months. I I make some educated guesses (laughs) when rewriting her history based on a timeline that my dad wrote for me. And there were two coups, one failed coup, and then another coup with Perón. And so so her aunt and uncle lost all their savings. And her uncle was working for a foreign Russian company as like taking maps of the, the ground and a surveyor, sorry, a surveyor. Mm. And um, I believe he lost his job and his income. So there was a Croatian community in Caracas, Venezuela. And so he went to Caracas, Venezuela and started to work. And her aunt and my mom took a train over the Andes to Chile and then took a ship to Caracas. Oh, wow. And then she stayed there until she met your dad, right? She did. Yeah. So she met him there. Uh, Her uncle taught her how to draft maps. And um, and so she was working. And he, my father was from Washington State. And well, his grandparents were from Dresden, Scotland and Ireland. And then he came through Minnesota, eventually to Washington State. And um, during World War Two, he worked for uh, Mount Rainier National Park as a park ranger, because all the men were off fighting, including his brother. And so during the war, he was, you know, working as a park ranger. And then when all the men came back, he lost his position, so he was on a wait list, and he went to college. He helped his brother, who lost both his legs in Okinawa, go to college, and then he was waiting to become his dream, a park ranger. But while he was waiting, he applied for a job as a geophysicist, and he got a job in Caracas, Venezuela, and he met my mom on his first day <laughs> of work. And then there's a whole love story that takes place in the book. <laughs> of what happens. And yes, you explain it all in the book. And we don't want to give too many spoilers because we want everybody to read the book. Let's talk about your book. It's called Immigrant Daughter. And I was really intrigued by the title itself because you're not an immigrant, right? Your mom was an immigrant, but you call yourself an immigrant daughter. What does that signify? It's a really interesting story how the title came. (laughs) The stories you never told me, I was doing a writing workshop for middle school students and you had to answer the question in New York City and you had to answer the question, where do you come from? And I did a poem with them. And, you know, one of the things I wrote was I come from the stories you never told me, you know, and so that's that was the title for a really long time. And then I tried to enter this book contest And my husband is also a child of immigrants. And he was entering this book contest with his book and I was entering with mine. And as you know, entering these contests take a lot of work. And when I finished, I was on my way walking to yoga and I just felt so euphoric. I felt like all my life I had felt different and kind of fought for this immigrant, daughter of immigrants identity. 
you know, Mm -hmm. and I was so happy. I just felt like, yeah, I really am. Like I have that immigrant identity of my mom's, you know, and then I got home and my husband told me that I wouldn't, you know, be able to really apply. Like they wouldn't consider my book because you had to have two parents that were immigrants, not just one. Oh. <laughs> and he could because he had two parents. And so I think I got really mad. For me, it was hard to be able to claim a child of immigrant identity when I was growing up and where I was. And my family was very different than the families around us. And so I said, you know what? I'm changing my title. <laughs> I'm going to call my book Immigrant Daughter Stories You Never Told Me. So huh. it's kind of for both of us. It's for me and it's for my mom. <laughs> right. And you said you found it difficult to reclaim your immigrant identity as you were growing up because your dad was not an immigrant, right? Right. He third generation, right? Or second generation. I think I felt like I grew up in a neighborhood that was very not diverse. There were very few immigrants there at Colorado, new suburb. And I felt like if I needed to, I could be very American, but I felt comfortable around people that were from different countries, more comfortable because I had spent time or my early childhood in other countries. And my parents both spoke Spanish fluently. And my mom was very different than the other American moms I grew up with. And I really did feel like it was different. I think probably that's why eventually I moved to New York City is to feel more at home. In what ways was your mom different from other American moms? And are you talking specifically about other white American moms or all American moms? I don't know what exactly I mean, (laughs) but I'll say this. Um, Even now, uh, a friend recently read the book and she said to me, your mom, she was always really different. Oh, wow. And uh, people would come over to my house and they would comment that my mom's accent was so exotic. And to me, that seems so strange because I didn't really hear an accent. I mean, if she picked up the phone and talked to a stranger, then I would hear her Croatian accent. Other than that, to me, she just sounded like my mom. I didn't feel like she had an accent. But I guess, like, my mom didn't really belong to any groups and Mm. she didn't try to, I guess the word would be now assimilate. I Mm. mean, I think she really you know, kind of kept to herself. She had a few friends, but she kind of was on her own path. And she used to take like these five mile walks through our neighborhood with her shorts and tank tops and, and men would honk on her honk at her, and she would just ignore them. And people would say to me, Oh, I see your mom walking around all the time. She walks around the neighborhood, right? You know, (laughs) and that was unusual then, believe it or not, you know. Um, So There was no Croatian Yugoslav community where we were. There was nobody who spoke her language. There was nobody that kind of looked like her. And so it was different. There were a few immigrants. There was a few white immigrants and a few Latinos. She definitely was very at home with South Americans and Central Americans and Mexicans and because she had lived in Spain Argentina and Venezuela and Peru. And so she was fluent in Spanish and she was very comfortable around that cult. She loved Mexican mariachi music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she loved, you know, that. And so she really gave me more South American, that kind of culture 
appreciation for that than Croatian. She kind of silenced all her Croatian past and her Croatian culture. Why do you think she did that? Do you think because she just didn't have a good experience growing up there? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good question. You've interviewed a lot of people, so you might have a better answer. I think for her generation and having talked to people since the books come out, I wonder if they really felt like they needed to turn away from the past to be American, really let go, and that they couldn't have both. For her, I think it was that she she was probably suffering from post-traumatic stress and couldn't process that. Because she couldn't process it, she kind of didn't know what to do with it. So she just kind of buried it in herself. And I sensed that, but I didn't understand it until, of course, much later, long after she died. That's a really good question. <laughs> so it's interesting, Catherine, because on the one hand, you mentioned that your mom was never looking to assimilate, right? She did her own thing. She believed in whatever she believed in. Um, she carved her own path. And on the other hand, she also shied away from her creation past, which is very intriguing to me because as you are narrating your mom's story, I am trying to think through my journey and I completely relate to your mom when it comes to not really trying hard to assimilate. I would rather integrate, um, maintain my own identity and adopt things of American culture that I am fond of rather than just completely giving away my identity or shying away from it. But on the other hand, I'm also very vocal about who I am, where I come from, my language, my identity, my religious affiliation. And I've tried really hard to pass that on to my kids. So I am just wondering if it is either a generational thing or maybe, as you said, your mom had this trauma that she went through and maybe that prevented her from revisiting her past. Yeah, I wonder if a Yugoslav identity is really a complicated one. So you've got, you know, Serbian, Bosnian, Bosnian Muslims and um, Croatians and their very complicated, tricky past. Hmm, hmm, <laughs> and that's true. Um, uh, maybe also that idea that, you know, when I was growing up, if you said Yugoslavia, people really didn't have any idea where that was. <laughs> what that country was. I remember, you know, I wanted to travel. And so as a teenager, I got all the member, I don't know if you remember poster stores, they had st and stores in the mall that sold all these cool posters. And I they had posters of different countries, and it would be a beautiful photograph with the name of the country underneath. And I remember, mm -hmm. I got one with this beautiful, you know, church on a mountaintop with a steeple, a small church, and it had Yugoslavia on the bottom. <laughs> and I hung it up <laughs> in my room. And it's just interesting, like I felt some sort of pride that she was from where she was from, you know, without understanding all the different history or identities yeah. that came with that. I, I wonder, like, you know, if somebody asked about her past, she would definitely openly talk about it, mm. but she wouldn't tell them the bad things, you know, of what had happened to her. And that makes sense, because if you are telling your story, you don't want people to judge you based on the negatives of either your culture or your the country that you come from, your country of origin, because sometimes people are too judgmental and 
too hard on others based on where they come from and who they are. I know, like, in Yugoslavia, they were forced to learn Russian, right? And um, my mom loved Russian, and she loved Russian novels, and she loved that. And I thought it was so interesting um, with my husband's family, they're from Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, that they kind of resented being forced to learn Russian. And so I thought, oh, that that's so interesting. Like my mom saw it as literature and art and a, a great thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. So one of the concepts that you explored during this book is the role of trauma within familiar generations, right? So without giving any spoilers, you cover that your mother lived through these traumatic historical events. How did your understanding of intergenerational trauma deepen when you were writing this book? I think I began right after her death, and it was on and off a 20-year journey. But when I first started, I was really stunned by my mom's death and very broken. And then years later, I was still, you know, suffering from anxiety and panic and uh, sort of out of body experiences and could not ground myself. And I think it wasn't until I began to untangle some of her silences and begin to piece together some of her history and interview my dad a lot, because he knew a lot more than me that I began in the beginning when I wrote about the difficult things that happened to her from her perspective and her family's perspective, it was really hard and I would cry, you know, but eventually it moved beyond that. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I feel that I sort of processed, helped my mom and even after her death and me sort of process some of the grief that had been frozen inside her so that we both could move on. And that that's how I like to think of it. Do you think that trauma has also been passed on to you? I really believe that. You know, in listening to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk or Dr. I think her name is Rachel Yehuda, they kind of talk about that the trauma being able to be passed on or being able to put words to stories or traumatic events. And I think it's epigenetics, like how it's in our biology, actually, that the second generation does feel some of that and it changes their biology. So yeah, I think, I mean, I think from the very beginning, even before I had listened to some of those researchers, I felt mm -hmm. like I sense my mom's history, even if I don't know it. And in that sensing, I'm sort of carrying her trauma. And that can keep going for generations and generations or through writing, through telling stories, I can do something about it. How much have you talked about your mom's grief and trauma to your kids? Do they know? Have you shielded them from all of this information? Or have you shared your journey with your kids as well? For better or worse, I've really shared a lot with them. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, especially my little one, my eight-year-old, he gets worried about me. Huh. <laughs> that something's going to happen to me, you know. They'll say things like, why didn't you have us earlier so we could have more time with you? So oh. I know they definitely have heard pieces of this book because when I was revising it, I read it aloud a lot. 
and they would come in and listen to snippets of it. And they haven't really, they don't know the stories, her war stories, but they've heard lots of pieces of the book and they know that her loss really impacted me. But at the same time, I feel they actually know more about Croatia and Croatian than I did growing up because of the book. (laughs) And because I had to, you know, I try to write some Croatian words and include little stories or little songs. And my mom never gave me that. (laughs) So it's kind of funny that the book ended up being this vessel of a way to sort of give them little pieces of Croatian-ness. And my older one, my 13-year-old really, really wants to go to Croatia, and he really wants to um, explore and go visit Havard and all these different things. So I, I was going to ask you that if your kids wanted to go, but do you feel any resentment towards your mom for not giving you as much information as you now crave? Because I can sense it in your voice. It seems like you really crave those conversations and you could have had those conversations with your mom about her identity and where she came from and her life in former Yugoslavia and all of that. That would have been so amazing, right, to be able to ask her some of these questions now or to even to know your mom as a grown-up or a middle-aged woman, (laughs) you know, it's or as a mom. Um, that would be really amazing. But I think now what I, I what I'm actually thinking about a lot is like, especially in our situation of the coronavirus yeah. <laughs> and being quarantined, I was like, I just feel like she was such a good mom in so many different situations because she never put her expectation on me. And she didn't put her hopes and dreams on me. She she let me have my own experience. And I think as a mom, that's really hard to not try to control things for your kids. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So I really admire that. And I'm aspiring to do better because I feel like that that's so hard. That's kind of amazing that we were in all these really difficult situations, especially toward the end of her life, you know, financially, and she had cancer and we were just, it was very difficult, but yet she somehow had such grit and grace and made the best of things despite everything. I I would like to do that. <laughs> so, Catherine, you spent almost 20 years writing this book and you also have dyslexia, right? Yes. How difficult was it to write this book because of dyslexia and how did you overcome that challenge? I mean, I think, first of all, I didn't know I had dyslexia until I finished graduate school at Columbia in creative writing. (laughs) So it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I got diagnosed and finally figured that out. And, And then I would say it took years after that to really learn about dyslexia and understand it. And only now, I think in recent years, do I realize all the gifts that it gives me because it's, I don't know if it's something you overcome, it's something that you work with just because your brain works differently than other people. So I do feel like, oh, this is so interesting. My mom and I had parallel journeys. She couldn't find the words to tell me her history, you know? And, you know, I used to wake up in the middle of the night when I was a little girl and hear her crying and I would tiptoe to her bedroom. And it was this, you know, different, like sorrowful type of cry 
And I would stand in the doorway and see my dad trying to comfort her. And I'd ask her, you know, mom, what's mama, what's wrong? And she just couldn't tell me. And she'd reach her arm out to me and I'd go hold her hand. And, you know, she was never able to tell me. Did your dad ever tell you what the reasons were? Yeah, what the reasons were. And, you know, now I imagine it was her parents or different images that from the war or being sick, you know. But this journey (laughs) that I hung in there with, where there was so many times I thought I gave up or I could have given up and I didn't. And that writing was so hard for me that I picked this thing that was so hard for me, but it was the way that I could get at her history And, you know, I know what it's like to be put in remedial English classes in college Mm -hmm. (laughs) and fail. And I know what it's like to get Fs on high school papers. And I, I know what it's like, you know, when they tried to hold me back in third grade. I know what all those things are like, you know, and that I think it's really important for people with learning differences to remember. And I think it helps me with my students that I work with as well, is that, you really don't know what you're capable of. Like you can put limits on yourself even mm. that you, you just have no idea what you can do. Because now when I've done readings or any press for the book, one of the things that people say is that it's so cinematic and they experience reading the book like a movie. And I think that that's so interesting for me because people that are dyslexic are very visual. I'm very sound oriented and very visual. so. If I try to talk ideas, it's difficult for me. But if I can just see in my head what I'm trying to say, then it's much easier. That's so fascinating. So how do you think your mom would react to this book if if she read it? Well, people have asked me that. And it is a difficult question. My mom was such a private person. Huh. <laughs> um, but I think... I think both my parents and my dad did get to read the book before he passed away. But my mom, I think she would like it, that that it's something creative. She was really into me doing creative things like dance (laughs) and ballet. Mm. I think I think she would appreciate where we got to. (laughs) And that time that I got to spend with her family, like I don't think she realized how much like I wanted to know her family, you know. So, yeah. Mm. How did your dad react? My dad actually helped me so much, except for he died about nine years ago, nine or 10 years ago. And um, Hmm. so he helped me in the early stages. So when I first started working on this book, there was not a lot of Croatian stories out there or anything in translation or just a lot of the things that I looked for were so hard to find. So my dad really helped me with the research and he really helped me proofread And he was like my research assistant. And so when he um, read the part, and of course, I interviewed him so much. So, so many of the details I have is like, he gave me one thing. And then from that thing, I was able to write a whole story. And he did this incredible thing that I think every parent should do. He made a timeline for each of us. So for me, my mom and my dad, of all the major events and moves and places that we lived and different things that happened from the time we were born. But when he read the chapter about his love story with my mom, he said, you know, how did you know this is exactly the way it happened? So that was nice (laughs) that he approved. And he gave me their real love letters that I include in there. 
So one of the questions that you raise in the book is also, what does it mean to find wholeness, I guess? Have you found it? Well, I guess there's different stages of finding wholeness. But definitely, even though if I'm with a group of Croatians, I will feel, you know, other because I'm not them and I don't speak the language. But I definitely feel a deeper connection when I listen to Croatians and their stories. And I have Croatian friends now. And I didn't have Croatian friends before. You know, I didn't know any Croatians. So yeah, I do feel a different sense of that connection. And hopefully, I mean, I hope maybe one day this book will make it there. <laughs> Croatians are really responding strongly that have read it here or in England. I've had some Croatian readers or from Brussels. Somebody found the book in Brussels that's Croatian and had me Skype with their book club. And so it's been really interesting, the whole doing readings and talking to groups of people. And that makes me feel whole. Hearing about people, people also want to write about their families, and sometimes they're afraid to do it. You know, it's interesting that I feel a connection to my parents when I'm talking to all these people, you know, even with you about the book. So, so that's mm. been really nice. That gives me a sense of wholeness. I should have asked you this question first what does wholeness mean to you i i am taking a step back and asking this question because as you were talking i was like i don't even know what wholeness means to her i think different writers write for different reasons some people mm -hmm. write to find justice or to find meaning i definitely write to find connection and in general i i like you know, feeling connected to groups of people or hearing people's stories. So I think, yeah, people being able to honor their experience from where they are. And that includes, you know, people from different countries, people with learning differences, people with disability, that they don't have to pretend to be somebody else that they're not, that they can just be who they are, go from where they are. And it's okay. I think that the book made me feel a sense of wholeness like, it's okay to have my voice. It might not be like other writers' voices, but it was okay to create space. Like, I, my voice has worth, and there is a space in the world for it. So you brought an excerpt of your book to read to our listeners. Tell us about why you chose this part to share before you shared it with us. Sure. This is from the middle of the book. <laughs> I have returned back to Croatia many years after my mom's death to try to find the TB sanatorium where she was as a teenager. In this particular excerpt, I'm walking, hiking on this mountain trying to find this TB sanatorium, and I'm thinking about Ružica, who is her friend who she was in the hospital with, and also as teenagers, they were together in a TB sanatorium. And I think I, I'm not sure why I picked this, actually. I just went with my instinct. <laughs> um, so maybe after I read it, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Do you want me to read it now? Yes. Okay. Okay. She had pulled out bound collections of old movie magazines, the same ones she and my mom used to look through when they were convalescing as teenagers. We flipped through the pages, admiring the actors. Grace Kelly, Rita Hayworth, Jane Wyman, and Ingrid Bergman. And finally, I mustered up the courage to ask her about Brestovats. Her blue eyes became grave. Her son translated as she said, 
That time was a disaster for so many of us. Every week, two or three beds would open. She sighed, smoothing the white tablecloth with the palm of her hand. My mom had never talked about the dying. Ruzhitsa continued, Your baka, your mom's grandmother, only wanted Mariana to get better despite herself. Despite herself, echoed in my mind. I nodded and felt a slight ache behind my heart. My mom wanted to live, even if it made her die. Ruzhitsa shook her head and said, Katarin, we tried so hard to forget. We spent our whole lives trying to forget that time. That's beautiful, Catherine. It's it's really beautiful. Now I know why I picked it. <laughs> I can even visualize it. As you mentioned, that book is so visual in its depiction. I could, as you were reading it, I could really visualize the the scene, the event. Thank you. I think I picked that because the book is about remembering, mm-hmm. even though like my mom needed to forget, I needed to remember to feel a sense of connection and wholeness and to be able to move on with my life. I think the book is about through remembering our family's histories and processing them, we find resilience. And if they just get left discarded, it's hard to find that resilience. So normally to conclude an episode, we ask our guests to describe America. But this time, since your mother's story is at the heart of all of this, and we've mostly talked about your book and your mom's story, how do you think she would describe America? Well, I think kind of there's two sides of it. I think before she came to America, she would describe America as like old Hollywood (laughs) because she (laughs) went to so many of those films in the former Yugoslavia when she was growing up and they helped her survive war and communism and her tuberculosis and that, you know, glamorous Hollywood stories, you know, people find refuge in a movie theater, Hmm. you know, and this different life away from your hardships and suffering. And I think for her, the American movie was that. (laughs) And she celebrated that all her life. (laughs) But I think it's kind of interesting because my mom um, met my dad in Caracas, Venezuela, and she married him. She fell in love and married him. And But they didn't live in the States for a long period of time. They kind of moved all over the world. So I think for my mom, America was my dad. And that Mm. he, you know, loved learning languages, loved learning about different countries, loved meeting different people. He was much more social than she was and loved nature. And I think he kind of represented America to her. She didn't really... You know, she kind of could be solitary. You know, my memories of her, like, she would walk and read and clean our house. And But she also, America, I think, was an opportunity for her. Like, for the first time in her life, she had some financial stability in a real home. Mm -hmm. And she started in her 40s. That was the only... We lived for 10 years in Colorado. And that was the only time in her life she had a house and a home and kind of more stability. And she started learning ballet. She would drive to downtown Denver and take ballet classes with this wonderful ballet dancer. She was from Ballet Russe and with a group of other ladies who had never danced before. And they would go in and take class. And I always remember that. And I think 
those ballet classes were her America. Like finally she got to do some things and be young and she never got to be young earlier because of all her immigrations and all the different things that she went through. And how would you describe America? I mean, when I think of America, I really think of my Bronx college students that I've been working with for like, you know, 16 years that come from all over the world. And to me, they are America and their stories and their struggles. And, you know, they write about what it's like to cross the border or what it's like to be in an apartment that, you know, suddenly ICE comes in and takes your father away and be responsible for all your siblings. They write about how difficult it is to come into the American high school system and not speak the language and Mm. just so many different things. You know, they're fleeing oppression, war, violence, poverty and illness, just like my mom. And yet they come here with so much hope. (laughs) And even though it's so hard here and they face so much racism and discrimination and suffering, but still, like when they write about our country, they have so much faith in it and they really Mm. believe in it. So that Mm. really inspires me. So to me, they're America. Where can people find your book? It is on Amazon or any of the online booksellers. Thank you so much and have a safe weekend. You too. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Immigrantly. Thank you for all your love, for your support. If you need more information about Immigrantly, our upcoming episodes, our previous episodes, if you haven't listened to them yet, you can go to our website, immigrantlypod.com. We also have information there for our Patreon, our GoFundMe, And we have a link to Masks for America. It's a wonderful organization that is helping people on the front lines of this crazy, horrific pandemic. So you can probably consider supporting them. We are on Twitter and Instagram and would love to have you guys there with us. And keep listening. Come back next time when we have another incredible story. And in the meantime, stay safe and distant. Mm